Good morning. Mark chapter 13, Mark chapter 13, we're going to read in just a few minutes verses 14 through 27, Mark chapter 13. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. How many of you have read that bumper sticker? Now, how many of you have... No, you don't have to answer this question. How many of you have owned that bumper sticker? I want you to, I want you to think about that. Don't, no need to raise your hand. When I was a young, uh, young Christian, I would sometimes come home, and if I was surprised that my family was gone, I would literally think, wait, did the rapture happen? And did Jesus forget me? Some of you have heard of this interesting doctrine. I'm going to call it the secret rapture. What is the secret rapture? It teaches that there will be a moment where Jesus will suddenly come and snatch up all Christians to himself. And it happens years prior to the great tribulation and before his second coming. Now, I wonder whether you know how old this view is. It's 150 years old. It's not the prevailing view through church history. In fact, it emerged in the 19th century from a man named John Darby. Then it was significantly boosted by the Schofield Reference Bible that might be familiar to you. And then it was popularized to the masses by the Left Behind series written by Jerry Jenkins. Yes. So when Jesus comes to rapture his people, you don't want to be left behind because then you will have to endure the great tribulation at the end of the world. But if you're a Christian, you can escape all of that. You can get out of the tribulation at the end of the world, and you'll only get the good stuff with Jesus when he comes back finally. But friends, does the Bible teach that Christians will escape the great tribulation? or that Christians will need to endure the great tribulation? Does the Bible even teach a secret rapture to begin with? My short answer is no. The Bible teaches that Jesus will come back after a long period of trouble and persecution and tribulation for God's church, and then the end of the age and the start of a new age. I believe this best corresponds to the teaching of the Scriptures. And if true, then the church will escape the great tribulation. Actually, the church will need to endure it. Now, why does any of this matter? You know, are we kind of dipping our fingers and toes into something that's just, you know, super controversial and let's not... Well, let's say if you knew that in 24 hours a semi-truck was going to hurl down your neighborhood street at 90 miles an hour, uncontrolling, you know, and it just kind of rapidly coming down your street uh, tomorrow at 4.30 p.m., you would prepare for that, right? You would take some precautions and you would get your family out of the yard, perhaps. Now, if that semi-truck was coming like that, but you know that you're going to be in the Bahamas tomorrow, would you even care? Maybe you would, you know, Tell your neighbor and give some warning there. But what if you thought you'd be in the Bahamas tomorrow, but you really would be standing in the street at 4.30 p.m.? 
you'd be in trouble, wouldn't you? Because you prepared for the wrong thing. Friends, we need to know what's really coming so that we can be prepared. That's what this week and next week's texts are all about in Mark chapter 13. This week, we're going to spend more time about uh, more time on the great tribulation and the second coming of Christ with a little bit on how to prepare. Next week, it's going to be kind of flip-flop. We're going to spend more time on how we prepare and less on the end times itself. So let's read our passage now, starting in verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, and those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coats. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah. See there. Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of this section of Scripture in a sentence. Be ready for the end, Christian, because the very worst and the very best are yet to come. Be ready for the end, Christian, because the very worst and the very best are yet to come. Friends, we need to know what's coming so we can be ready. So what exactly are we preparing for? Two points. Here's the first point. Be ready for the great tribulation. Be ready for the great tribulation, verses 14 through 23. Now, where does this language of abomination of desolation come from? We don't use, usually use words like this often. It's not talking about the abominable, abominable snowman, just to be clear. It comes from Daniel's chapter 11 uh, and 9, excuse me, 9 and 11. There is a prophesied figure who would come to desecrate God's temple and abolish the sacrifices. It would be so detestable that it would cause the temple to be abandoned by God's people. So we've been talking now for a couple of weeks, the temple is a big deal for the Jews. It was the center of their religion. It represented their ability to enjoy God's presence. It was so prized and precious among God's Old Testament people. So we gotta remember this. So this prophecy coming out of Daniel 9 and 11 it was absolutely awful, absolutely awful. And, and when did this prophecy kind of land? When did it get fulfilled? Well, remember our conversation last week about considering prophecy as a sort of bouncing cannonball, not always having one particular historical fulfillment, but sometimes multiple touch points, multiple fulfillments. Well, this is one of those bouncing cannonballs, okay? The first touch point, the first fulfillment happened in 167 B.C. 
with the Seleucid king Antiochus IV. So this is 150 years before Jesus spoke these words in Mark chapter 13. Now, what did Antiochus IV do? Well, he conquered Jerusalem. He forbid the offerings of the sacrifices. He forced them to sacrifice pigs. He erected a statue of Zeus right in the middle of the temple courts. And he even set up a brothel in the temple chambers. And this caused the Jews, as you would imagine, to completely abandon the temple. So, so when Jesus brings up this language, his disciples are thinking about two things. They're thinking about Daniel's prophecy, but they're also thinking about when it was originally fulfilled in Anti- with Antiochus. It's not a stretch to think that within the first century Jewish memory, that event had left an indelible mark. It was a painful memory, a horrendous memory. Even though it was eight generations or so prior, there's no doubt that the Jews still had a haunting recollection of that event. It was so awful. But friends, as awful as that event was, it was only a partial fulfillment, just one of the bounces of the cannonball. Because Jesus is predicting not just the takeover of the temple, but the destruction of it. We see that here in Mark 13. So the the second touch point or fulfillment is what we talked about last week in 70 AD with the Roman general Titus. And so we know this According to the historical records after a siege of Jerusalem, Titus overcame their defenses and stormed into the temple sanctuary. And there his soldiers set up their standards in the temple, offering sacrifices in the name of Titus. That temple would soon be destroyed. So this marked the end of the temple age, as it were. Now I want you to notice something in verse 13. Notice the interesting parenthetical statement. Verse 13, it says, Let the reader understand. Now, this can't be Jesus's words because he's speaking, right? So what this is, is actually Mark's little aside to his readers. He's alerting his readers to the fact that this fulfillment will take place very soon for them. So you got to put ourselves in the shoes of these kind of recipients of Mark's gospel, likely in their lifetime, because, well, Mark was written in the late 50s, early 60s. So likely in their lifetime, this event would go down. In fact, they probably received this just maybe a few years before Titus would invade. And so he's saying, Mark is saying, hey, readers, this thing is coming. Be ready. But of course, there's a final culminating fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. This is the final bounce of the cannonball. Remember last week I talked about this chapter as kind of a dimmer switch, where at the beginning it's only about the temple's destruction as we kind of slowly move ahead, it becomes about the end of the age. So here, we're kind of right in the middle of the chapter, and so the light of the end times is growing slightly brighter. And so this third and final touch point is that Jesus is ultimately fulfilled. Jesus' prophecy here, and really ultimately Daniel's prophecy, is fulfilled in the Antichrist figure at the end of time. Now, this is the same person that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of lawlessness. And Paul says in that chapter about the man of lawlessness that he will take his seat in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. So as you look at kind of what we see here when Jesus is saying, I don't see similar language to this. So that's kind of the layout of this first section. So the question, of course, for you and for me is how shall we live in light of this, in light of these kind of bouncing cannonballs, right? Well, let's first put ourselves in the shoes of these disciples. 
as they received these instructions, both the apostles, but also the first century Jerusalem church who received the, the gospel of Mark. Let's put ourselves in their shoes and kind of you know, look around their world and try to figure out, okay, how might they have received these instructions from Jesus? Well, they likely thought that the abomination of desolation was a thing of the past. But, but, but wait, wait a second, Jesus, what are you saying here? You're saying this horrible thing that our poor ancestors had to suffer through. We're going to have to endure that again? God's church in Jerusalem would have to endure this, this new assault? This was a big thing. But of course, thanks be to Jesus that he's telling them now about it, right? He is preparing them by telling them it will happen before it will happen. In fact, that's how Jesus closes the section. Look at verse 23. He says, And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. And look at how he prepares them, starting in verse 13. Those in Judea should flee to the mountains, so run away and escape as the attackers are coming in. You won't have time to gather up your stuff, so don't grab your coat or anything else. Just get out of the city. So Jesus is warning the city to flee as the Romans are advancing. He's warning the church in particular in Jerusalem. As Again, Mark's gospel you know, is being received by the early church, but he's also warning these apostles, right? Get out of the city. And then starting in verse 17, notice he turns to the horrors of a city under siege and the terrors that are occurring inside and outside the city. He mentions the suffering of pregnant women and new mothers. Why does he mention them? Well, because they're obviously in a, such a state where they're not going to be able to move quickly. He counsels them to pray it won't happen in winter because food would be scarce. Historians like Josephus confirm that these very things happened. Listen, friends, outside the city, the Romans crucified so many Jews that they ran out of wood for the crosses. Inside the city, there was extreme suffering, disease and murder and starvation and even cannibalism. Apparently, over one million people died during this siege. This would be so bad, so bad that Jesus would say, notice verse 19, for those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. Now, some people look at that verse and think, okay, this is clearly pointing to the end of the age. And there's some uh, sense of that because, again, this is multiple fulfillments. But I think Jesus is also using stock imagery to express that this is a momentous calamity. You know, we do this sometimes, right, with language. So imagine you're hanging in the Safi and Nathan abode in our house, and this is all made up, okay? So you're hanging with my family and Jenny and I are we're updating a particular room, and Jenny says, hey, Godwin, where should we move the couch? And I respond, well, I couldn't care less. You know, I, I support your decision. It doesn't matter to me. And then so we you know, move the couch. And then she asked me a, a second question. She says, what color should we paint the wall? I respond, I couldn't care less. You know, you, you pick the color, and, and I will help you paint the wall, right? It, this is not so far from reality, by the way, but, you know, uh, this is a, a, not a real story. Now, now, now of course, um, we, we might be asking, you know, Godwin, which one exactly is the epitome of your apathy? You know, is it the location of the couch or is it the color of the paint? <laughs> a bit a little silly. Now, obviously, I'm not saying, hey, honey, I'm just emotionally incapable of being interested in anything remotely close to the location of the couch. Like, I'm not really saying that, of course, right? No, I'm using exaggerated language 
to express something. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm sure you're going to make a good decision. I'll support you in that. Let me help you move it, right? Jesus, I think here, is doing something really similar. He's saying, using hyperbolic language, it's going to be really bad, guys. It's going to be really bad. According to verse 20, notice God will cut those days short for the sake of the elect. You know, this refers to the siege only lasting, we know this from historical records, only lasting five months, which of course is horrible, but it was relatively a short time frame for a siege. And notice, according to verses 21 and 22, pretend messiahs and false prophets would arise, even doing signs and wonders, likely empowered by demonic forces. It would be tempting to think, hey, you're performing miracles. You got some sort of power. This might be Jesus himself. But notice in verse 22, their motivation to lead God's people astray. Now, that doesn't say they will lead the elect astray. It says they will try to sway them. I think it speaks more to their motivation. We know this because in the end, God will protect his elect. He will protect his chosen people. Now, what mercy these words would be to the church in Jerusalem in 70 AD when Christians who trusted Jesus' words would do what he says here. They would flee the city. Now, you might be thinking, hey, this... This isn't, I mean, is this kind of like the secret rapture where we kind of escape the great tri tribulation? It's an argument that is made. I have two responses to that. The first one is the details here are way too specific to spiritualize this into some only future events. Flee Judea, the mountains, nursing mothers, a short siege. The second response I have is even those who fled suffered greatly. Unlike the so-called secret rapture, even those who escaped Jerusalem still experienced hunger and homelessness and fear, all kinds of suffering. It's kind of a sort of salvation, but not complete. But what I want us to focus on is that first century Jerusalem church, they believed the words of Jesus, didn't they? Those who escaped, they believed the words of Jesus. He said something would happen. And he said something would happen because he cares for the church. And they believed him. They fled. And as a result, they were saved. Many non-believing Jews came to faith during this period as well, we know. So what's the application for us? Well, I mean, it's a very simple application, but it's so important. I want you to hear me. We are called to trust the words of God with regards to our future suffering to trust God's word with regards to our future suffering. We too are called to maintain the same sort of vigilance that we see here with these disciples as we watch history slowly unfold. We too are to be on guard, to, to watch out as we prepare to suffer. This preparation isn't just for the general trials and tribulations ahead in our lives, in our personal lives. In this passage, I believe God is also preparing his church for the great future tribulation. He's giving us this kind of shocking historical event as a picture of the great tribulation to come. You know, and he's kind of bringing forth this, this, this scene in their memory, this, this Antiochus IV and how horrible that is. And, and then they're going to experience this temple destruction and, and experience all of the atrocities related to the siege. And, and he's kind of saying, listen, this is really, really bad, but there's something coming that's going to be even worse. And these are just little pictures 
of what's to come. So what is the great tribulation? What is it? It refers to a future intense period of suffering for the world prior to the return of Jesus. And during this great tribulation, there will be a future satanic leader. It's going to be the abomination of desolation who will demand to be worshipped and he will persecute God's people. Revelation chapter 6 speaks of the four horsemen whom God unleashes on the earth at the beginning of this great tribulation, conquest, war, famine, and death. And these things happen, of course, in every age, but there's a sort of heightening in the great tribulation. It's the final escalation of suffering and evil in this world. And yet, and yet, as we look at Revelation 6, we have to ask the question, who sends the horsemen? God does. God does. And who predicts this antichrist figure, this abomination of desolation, who will come? Jesus does. Even the final escalation of, of unimaginable suffering and evil in this world will be governed by God. Isn't that good news, friends? It is all part of God's plan. Not one iota of what is to come will shock him. Now, the disciples, the early church who've received these instructions, they, they probably viewed what happened in 167 AD with this Antiochus guy, you know, as the worst thing ever, right? And then they've got this memory of that. So, so is Jesus now saying that things will actually get worse? I mean, could that, could that be possible for things to get worse? You know, friends, we all have an expectation of what bad suffering is. We have maybe a certain threshold. Maybe it's the Holocaust in recent history. Six million Jews were killed. You think of the killing fields of Cambodia, two million killed, or some other systemic genocide. I'm just thinking of kind of recent events, fairly recent historically. And this passage prepares us for the escalation, for the acceleration of evil and suffering beyond what we know. And as things get worse, as we experience feelings of desecration, as the church suffers in an in, in increasing fashion, as the reign of evil grows, we are tempted to feel like God has abandoned us, right? We wonder, how can God exist in the midst of all of this suffering and, and such a suffering that is growing? How can he allow this? How can he ordain this? How can he be patient with all of this? But friends, hasn't the Bible, hasn't the entire Bible prepared us for this escalation of evil and suffering? You know, there's some real like R-rated stuff in the Old Testament in particular, right? I mean, think about the days of Noah. You know, things were so bad, so awful that God would judge the entire, you know, race of humanity and he would just kind of preserve Noah and his family in this ark. Or think about the days of Judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No fear of God. Or think about, you know, towards the end of the Old Testament period of time when the people of God, when Israel was tortured and exiled in Assyria and Babylon. Evil, suffering, pain. It's all in the Bible in large swaths. So the Bible prepares us for unimaginable levels of evil and suffering. And yet God is still over it, isn't he? 
God still cares for His people in the midst of all of that. The Bible also affirms that truth. And the thing that confirms God's utter love for His people is that He ordained the death of His Son. Think with me for a moment. There's no greater injustice in all of human history than the death of Jesus. God, God put Jesus on the cross. If we ever wonder if God could exist in the midst of suffering, it happened to Him. Think about the cross, friends. The cross itself is an escalation of injustice and suffering because its object is God, a holy God. And He endured a sort of great tribulation for the sake of saving sinners. So the question that this passage seems to prevail upon modern church readers is, are you ready? Are you ready, brothers and sisters, for things to get worse? Are you ready for things to get worse? Perhaps in your own life, circumstances of life can get maybe heavier or harsher. Perhaps it's an acceleration of national or global forces, which will in turn put pressure and bring pain onto the church of Jesus. Are you and I, are we ready to suffer? Are we ready for the great tribulation? And maybe the most important question is, will we trust God's words when we suffer? I'm going to have a whole lot more to say about this next week. Let's move to the next point. What are we preparing for? First of all, the great tribulation. We're also preparing for the second coming of Christ. Friends, here is our great hope, starting in verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. First, I want you to notice this happens after that tribulation. Notice a reference, I believe, to the great tribulation. This is an important time marker. And what happens here, I believe in these verses, all happen kind of together on the same day. So the sun and the moon, it will go dark. The stars are falling out of the sky. The powers of the heavens are shaking. Jesus is saying that on the day he comes, there will be world-shaking, creation-unraveling, earth-shattering events that occur. The entire creation will be radically transformed. In fact, what we have here is the unraveling of the first creation and the ushering in of a new creation. The darkening of the sun and moon returns the universe to the situation before the first day of creation. The order of the space-time universe with seasons and days and years and so forth, it's all unraveling, it's all dissolving, making way for the reality of the glory of the Son of Man and the new creation that He is bringing And all of this stuff happens, you know, to the sun and the moon and the stars. It's all really just kind of window dressing, right? It's all just kind of rolling out the red carpet. I want you to picture this, friends. As the great lights of our world grow strangely dim and darkness once again covers the face of the earth, in this cosmological confusion amidst the unnatural darkness, a magnificent light filled glory cloud will be unveiled. Sharp and piercing light will just kind of stream through this cloud. 
And I want you to picture this. Upon that cloud, upon that shining cloud, is one like the Son of Man. And I want you to notice the details of his coming. People will see him coming. This is public. He will be coming on a cloud, which Old Testament references, you know, a divine mode of transport are clouds. And so we are not surprised by that. He will come with great power and with great glory. Now, what does that mean? I want to bear witness to the Apostle John, who in Revelation 19 had a vision of this very day. John, who said, he saw a rider on a white horse whose name is Faithfulness and True, who rides with righteousness and justice against all opposition, whose robe is dipped in blood, whose eyes are like fiery flames, whose head has manifold crowns upon it, and who has a tattoo on his thigh that reads King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and whose armies of heaven follow him on white horses, wearing white, pure linen. And he comes to strike down all enemies and rule the nations with an iron rod and trample the winepress of the fierce anger of the God Almighty. And friends, as the old creation steps back, making way for this new creation, and as the firstborn of that new creation comes upon the clouds, the world who sees will tremble because a reckoning is coming. We learn from Daniel chapter 7 that our friend Dan happened to be reading earlier today that all of this was prophesied before even Jesus spoke these words in Mark chapter 13. God the Father, the Ancient of Days, will give this Son of Man an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and the coming on clouds would be kind of his coronation event. It's when the crown is kind of publicly placed on his head. Jesus is king today in an inaugurated fashion, but when he comes upon the clouds, his reign will be public. All will know that he is king. And I just want you to see this. Look at how Jesus begins to set up his kingdom in verse 27. It says, He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, the ends of heaven. You know, those, those armies of heaven. I want you to picture this. Those armies of heaven, those angel armies, will be employed to gather the church from all over the world. Throngs of angels whizzing through the air from Jesus in the clouds shooting out to every little corner of the earth, from Papua New Guinea to Siberia to Bulgaria to Israel to Senegal to Bolivia to Thailand to Morocco to Argentina to Eritrea to Canada to Colombia to Poland to Somalia to Sri Lanka to Iraq and to Azerbaijan. Friends, you want a rapture? This is the rapture. And it's not secret. It's gloriously public. And it's not after, you know, the Great Commission. It's for those who have endured the Great Commission, proving and confirming their salvation. So let me ask you this question. How often do you think about this? How often do you dream about this day? How often do you imagine it and draw comfort from it? 
and derive joy from this day. This is our great hope for ourselves, first of all, but also for this world. In the past few weeks, um, our family has memorized Romans chapter 12, verse 12. I'm going to make my family, if you guys don't mind standing up, no? Okay. Romans 12, verse 12, it says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. What a great little verse. And that first phrase in that verse, rejoice in hope. Listen, friends, whatever, whatever the Christian hope is, it is powerful enough to give us great joy. We have a muscular hope, strong enough for our personal trials, strong enough for global concerns, strong enough for the great tribulation. Our hope is beyond that. It's greater than that. Because in the end, all things will be made right by King Jesus. We have the tendency to particularize and personalize our suffering. This is happening only to me. God is speaking on me. Why do other people get the good stuff? It feels unfair sometimes. And even if there's no kind of comparison, sometimes we're so kind of inward focused. We have the tendency to see only my pain. We forget the bigger picture, friends. The Apostle Paul talks about the bigger picture. He says in Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation is groaning. Our personal suffering is really a small part of the greater cosmic suffering that has been taking place for generations in every place on this globe, in every city, in every jungle, in every fishing village. The whole creation is groaning. According to Paul, not only is the whole creation groaning, but the whole creation is waiting, waiting to be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of God's children the glory that is to come. God has planned to renew it all. The whole world, every aspect of the fall will be undone when King Jesus comes back. So don't let your hope shrink and shrivel. I think this happens when we only think about our suffering and our individual struggles. Sometimes we can only see the great blessings of personal salvation, forgiveness of our sins and our resurrection bodies and reunions with our loved ones. These are all wonderful things. But friends, can we see the bigger picture? That one day the suffering of the whole cosmos will give way to the coming of the Son of Man. You see, friends, our hope is muscular. I wish I had big muscles, you know, that'd be... That'd be kind of nice in this moment, but I don't, you know. But our hope, our Christian hope is muscular. It encompasses more than just ourselves. It tells the story of forgiveness of sins and resurrection life being given to every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. It tells the story of this this new creation that's going to invade, that will overwhelm the entire old creation. It tells the story of this new kingdom and this new king that will come and conquer every evil regime on this planet. King Jesus will have his way in our lives and in every part of this world when he comes. And here's just one more step. Here's the astonishing thing. This great hope, which is in our future, 
in the church, we can have a little taste of it now. One of the most intriguing New Testament teachings is that Christ is the firstborn of this new creation. And that we, the church, are the first fruits. Do you hear that? Christ is the firstborn of this new creation, and we, the church, are the first fruits. It's almost like Jesus takes a little seed from the next stage, from, from, from the age, you know, the, to come, and he grabs that seed and he places it in our souls and he, he puts it right into the heart of faith church and, and it slowly starts to take root and, and slowly starts to produce this new creational fruit. We've got a little bit of the new creation right here in faith church and it's growing right in the middle of the old creation. So every time a young person becomes a Christian, it's transferred to the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his son. Every time a husband takes a small step of repentance, every time the word is opened and humbly obeyed, every time a sufferer leans on the bosom of Jesus in their pain, Every time a church family sings from the heart together with great gusto to King Jesus, we get a little glimpse, a little glimpse of that day when Christ will come back to set up his kingdom. It's here now in seed form. A little blade of glass that's kind of you know, poking up a little bit. It's a little teaser trailer. The full movie is yet to come. Friends, we can rejoice in hope because a little bit of that hope is realized now. So, brothers and sisters, be ready. Be ready. Prepare yourselves. It's true, the worst is yet to come. But the very best of what God has for his people is also ahead of us. And when that bright future begins, it will never, ever end. Amen. Let's take a moment now to uh, ponder this passage and meditate upon it silently, and then we will take the Lord's Supper shortly.